last week, uh, we looked at verse 1 of this chapter, and we heard Peter urge his readers back then and now to think, really to love God with all of our minds. And when Peter says in this passage, in verse 1, that he wants to stimulate us to wholesome thinking, the main thing that he wants us to do is to call God's word to mind. To call God's word to mind. He wants to stimulate us to think well on the Bible. And that's crucial. It's crucial in becoming what chapter 1 of his letter holds out for us, Christ-likeness. Growth in godliness. And it's crucial in helping us spot what chapter 2 describes. This erroneous, this false teaching that tears the heart out of the gospel and leaves you in great danger of being drawn into the fire. But before we start, I wonder if we actually realize this central fact that central to our faith and essential to growing in godliness and recognizing error is reading the Bible. It's considering the Holy Scripture that God has so graciously given to us. It is central, it is crucial, to the point that I think it's fair to say, it's not even an overstatement to say, that if we do not read our Bibles, we can't expect to grow in godliness. We might as well get used to struggling in some sense. And in the same way, if we do not read our Bibles, understanding what we see in there, we will leave ourselves prone to error, open to it. So growing in the knowledge of God is crucial, and reading the Bible, it sounds so simple, is just utterly vital. So here's what I want us to do tonight. I want to actually approach verses 1 and 2 tonight um, and structure it in such a way that I hope might even just demonstrate to us all a way to approach, understand, and apply the text. So I'm, I've got three points tonight. What, so what, and now what? Okay? So what? What does the text say? This is the what question. Now, this is your basic English interpretation question. Okay? The kind of thing you got at school, right? Just, just tell me in your own words, what does this passage actually say? Okay? Now, here's what I would say. Peter, in this passage, verses 1 and 2, presses home the value of thinking thinking over God's words. Now, there's more to it, of course, so let's break it down a bit. Verse 1 tells us that Peter has written two letters already. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. Do you see that? It's brilliant. Now, we are reading Peter's second letter. You can flick back a page or two in your Bibles. And what do we find Peter's first letter, voila, he's written two letters. Why? Verse 1 says, Peter wants to remind them of the things that he's taught them already. I have written both of them as reminders, he says. In other words, what Peter's doing here, he's covering old ground. The content of his letters really for us reveal the content of his teaching ministry. The subjects are essentially the same. What's he been teaching them in these two letters? Well, in the first letter, he's been teaching Christians how to live as as strangers in a land that's not their home. It's not their own. Our home as believers is essentially, as we'll see in chapter 3, the home of righteousness, the new heaven and new earth, 
We're living, if you like, as strangers in this world. This, we're, it's like we're living in a premier inn here. You know, this isn't our permanent residence. No, the permanent residence is still to come. So don't get too comfy. Now, he says that we ought to understand in that first letter, not only that we're strangers living in a foreign land, but that we have to bless God and praise God for this, the imperishable inheritance that is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead, having conquered sin, Satan, and death. And then we are called in that letter to be holy as the Lord Jesus himself is holy. Then in the second letter, as we've studied it in depth uh, over many months, he's, Peter has appealed to us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, remembering that's not a futile exercise. God supplies the power for us. Though growth is not automatic, we apply ourselves. We roll up our sleeves, look, and we put that power to work by seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's no lazy affair. And when we do, Peter tells us in chapter 1 that we reap this dual reward of effectiveness in this life and entrance into the next. That we can have something to show for our lives in this life and assurance that we're going to go to heaven when we die. Then in chapter 2, of course, in this letter, the tone changes and these are all things, of course, remember, that Peter has reminded them of. You know, the, the tone changes. It's the kind of tone that you adopt when you're trying to teach your children about the danger of going off with strangers or the danger of running out onto the road when a car is coming. Just running out to the road in general. Now, the parental warning, though, that Peter offers relates to the false teachers in particular who downplay the idea that there is a coming judgment day, a capital D, day of the Lord's. A day that is brought in when the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, returns. And these false teachers are downplaying all of that. But you get the sense that it's not really because they've got a particular theological beef with the doctrine. It's an excuse for getting away with their worldliness and their immorality. And Peter's warning for us is this. These guys, the, the thing that we're teaching you as the apostles, the messengers, the sent ones of Jesus, is the very word of God. In chapter 1 and verse 21, I think it was, he said, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, these are not made up by men, these words. These are God-given. What does he say in chapter 2, verse 3, about the false teachers? In Greek, Peter's words are reflected in this. It, it's his their teaching is, are described, is described as plastois logois, plastic words. Man, you factured, not God-given. So Peter says, don't fall into the trap. The hazard lights are on, the red flags are waving, just don't. And then there's the warning. If you do, if you don't spot the error, you'll become like them. And they, as he's described at the end of chapter 2, are like a hosed-down pig returning to the mud or a dog returning to its vomit. Don't fall into their trap. So the appeal of Peter, the teaching that he is reminding us of, is just that. 
And pursue gospel growth, growth then and avoid the trap of the false teachers. Now, why? Why remind them of these things? Well, I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking, to, stimu- to wake you up, to wake you up, to wake them up from slothful thinking, to get their brains firing again with the knowledge that means something and with which you can do something of eternal value. We covered that last week. He's stirring them to love God with all of their mind, to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of their minds. And of course, in verse 2 then, he sharpens the focus. And this is important. Peter tells us that his letters are intended to help stimulate these guys and us to recall and to think about the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the prophets and the apostles. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past, verse 2, by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's basically saying, I want you to recall the words of the Old and New Testaments. Now, the designation holy prophets is an umbrella reference for all of the Old Testament. It's not just a reference to those books of the Bible that can be defined by literary genre as prophetic books. And the apostles then are those who are chosen by Jesus to pass on the command given by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, personally commissioned by him, personally instructed by him to pass on that message, to pass on the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jesus left us no writing that bears his signature. Yet everything that's written down for us in the 27 books that comprise the New Testament, we can be in no doubt they're his words, his commands. That's what Peter's referring to. Even as he refers later in chapter 3 to Paul's writings, which he says, I'm glad about this, are sometimes hard to understand. He refers to them using the word graphe, which was the word that they used in Greek to refer to Holy Scripture. So what does this text say? In summary, Peter wants to stimulate his readers back then and now to to think over God's words, to think over the teaching of the Bible in order to help them recall the teaching of the Bible. Second point, so what? What's the significance? Why is he teaching us this? Well, it's quite simple, really. The context provides the answer. When we read and remember that God's word is crucial to growing in Christ-likeness, we will grow and we will avoid false teaching. Reading and remembering God's word is crucial to growing in Christ-likeness and avoiding false teaching. You'll never be able to grow if you're not able to recall the teaching of the Bible. Now, some say that I never really seem to grow in Christ-likeness. Sometimes I just feel like I'm battling the same old stuff. Well, that can happen. That can be our lot, even when we are reading the Bible. But we ought to recognize the value of reading and understanding and applying God's Word as we seek to fight sin. To put it in Paul's terms, to, to put the old man to death and put on the new self. And the question that we must naturally ask as we look at 
The so what is the, are we reading our Bibles and believing God's truth? By the same token, we'll never be able to really fend off the false teaching if we can't recall that teaching. Now, false teaching itself, I'm, I'm, I'm laboring this point for a reason because I think the false teaching can be so surreptitious, it's so sneaky. It, it, it just, it sneaks in. It doesn't come parading satanic symbols or anything like that. More likely, it appears on the bestsellers list in Christian bookshelves, for example. Some say, I was reading this book by Sarah Young. It's called Jesus Calling. I love these wonderful little meditations. Now, I think there are some dangers in this bestseller that I think are worthy of pointing out to us. She makes no uncertain, in no uncertain terms, she claims that she is speaking for God in this book. And that's far and away the most troubling aspect of the book that she hears from Jesus, then dutifully brings his message to her readers. Fascinating. And the publisher actually describes the book in this way, saying, after many years of writing in her own, her own words in her prayer journal, no, her own words, missionary Sarah Young decided to be more attentive to the Savior's voice and begin listening for what he was saying. So with pen in hand, she embarked on a journey that forever changed her and many others around the world. In these powerful passages are the words and scriptures Jesus lovingly laid on her heart. Wow. That's, I mean, there's no way to avoid her claim there that she is communicating divine message. Okay? Alarm bells, hazard lights, red flags, waving frantically. Okay? Secondly, she actually proclaims the insufficiency of the Bible. Jesus' calling only exists because Sarah Young has, has had a deep desire to hear from God outside of the Bible. And in the introduction, she describes the book's genesis, saying, I began to wonder if, if, I, if I could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was just one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more red flags, waving frantically. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on any given day. Dear Sarah, he has spoken sufficiently and authoritatively and has given us more than enough to chew on. This is why Peter is so keen to drum home this message that they must think, to be stimulated, to be stirred and wakened up to think about the things that he's already taught them, especially this teaching from the old and New Testament scriptures concerning the deep things of God, the basic things of the gospel, these great doctrines once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, we too are prone to forget these things and therefore need reminded of them. That's why this passage that has significance for Peter's readers back then has such significance for us right now. Number three, now what? I always think that what, so what, now what can be read in a slightly awkward term. Do you know, it can, you can sound really obnoxious when you, what? So what? Now what? It can sound really rude. We're reading it in the, in the polite way, okay? What? So what? Now what? 
What does it say? What is it, what's its significance? What, what should we do? Now what? What should we do? Well, three little things in here. First of all, it's obvious, isn't it? We should read it. We should read it. There is only one must read in the world, despite all the reviews that we can read on Amazon. I like reading books. I don't like wasting my time reading books that are rubbish. So I often read the reviews on Amazon or other places, and it's frustrating how many times I see people write, oh, this is a must read. They say that about all sorts of books, but there is only one must read. It's the Bible. It is the God-breathed words. It is the words that, according to Jesus, will never pass away, even if it, heaven and earth will. It's the scriptures that testify again and again about him. It's the book for which there is a divine helper in the person of the Holy Spirit, not man-made, God-given, not plastic words. Men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the only must-read. And without the Bible, we'll soon lose the genuine gospel and the real Jesus, and soon the true God. But if we saturate our lives with the words of life, we can grow. We can avoid the error of the false teachers in Peter's day and in our day. The question then is, how do we read it? There is some simple science, in a sense, to reading the Bible. You know, it's helpful to have just a simple method of approaching it in your toolkit. One that outlines the simple steps of observation, interpretation, and application. Like, what? So what? Now what? They're a gift, actually, to help us just get going and come to an otherwise dauntingly large book with some idea of actually what we ought to do next on how we ought to read it and understand it. There is another simple principle that we can apply where we refuse to read a text out of its context. We read the surrounding context. We take the verse in the context of the passage, the passage in the context of the chapter, the chapter in the book, and the book in the context of the whole Bible. As Don Carson said, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. It's true. But there is, as we can load up our toolkit with simple reading plans and so on. There is, there is no replacement for finding that regular time and place, the unrushed occasion when we can read our Bible and have time to think. And that was the point of impressing upon us last week the importance of seeking to love God with all of our minds. Actually, if you never pick up a theological book or any of the books that I recommended last week, well, that's fine. If only we're stimulated to pick up God's words and mull that over more. If we can block out distractions and put our nose in the text and let our mind and our hearts be led and captured and thrilled by God himself communicating to us through his word, then we'll find joy kindled, faith strengthened. Ministry comes alive. Let's not think for a second that personal Bible reading is just for personal benefit. No, it's for the benefit of the whole church family together. It's even for the benefit of those who don't know Jesus, that we might have something to say with them. Now, maybe we feel uncomfortable in the Scriptures 
Maybe we feel un- inadequate in this thing called Bible reading. The single most important thing then that we can do to make a regular habit of reading the Bible for ourselves is to just start again. Even for 30 seconds a day, picking one or two verses to mull over, even for a week. I think lots of people come with the idea of having a, a, a Bible reading plan where there are lots of checkboxes that promise to take you through the whole Bible in a year. Now, those have great value. But if you're in a place tonight where you find that you've not really been reading your Bible very much and you're struggling to do so, my encouragement for you is to take a text, a verse or two from this morning's sermon, from this evening's sermon. There is only two verses in this one. And mull those over and seek to understand them. You might just be surprised that even if you do that over a longer term, just how quickly these little bits add up over the long haul. I think some of the richest time that I've spent in Bible study was when we've taken months to go through the book of 2 Corinthians. Just one or two verses at a time. And as much as we want a quick fix, some, some fast lesson that makes us mere experts in just a few short minutes, the best of Bible reading isn't really learned overnight or even when we kind of dig into a period of study where we're, we're like, right, I'm going to read 10 passages a day. But day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, just slowly but surely reading the Bible and coming to understand it better. Now, you can follow a Bible reading plan that takes you through all sorts of things. My favorite one is actually called the 5 by 5 by 5 plan that you can get online. It's by... Uh, I think if you just Google discipleship journal five times five times five, it'll come up for you. It takes you through the New Testament in one year and you have Monday to Friday Bible readings and a day off on Saturday for a catch-up because you will have missed one during the week. And then there's nothing on Sunday because you should be paying attention to the sermon. All right, you've got enough Bible on a Sunday. Enjoy it. Think over it. Take time to think over it. That's okay. Some of us, you know, if you feel like you're good at Bible reading, you're, you enjoy it. Maybe you, want, maybe you start off with the target of, actually, I, I, I want to read the Bible so that I get a big overview of the, of the whole book, okay? Well, maybe you'll do something like the Bible in the year or the David Horner reading plan, which is huge. It's like 10 chapters a day. There is value in these things. But there is no value in guilt over letting it slip. Maybe if you are distracted and sin is involved, fine, confess it. Trust in the Lord's grace and start off on today's date as you go. The second thing we ought to do is not just read it, but to meditate on it. I mean, if we don't actually meditate on the Bible, this is what Peter's trying to get us to do, to think it over carefully and take time to do it. If we don't do that, we'll never grasp the depth of it. And the significance of what we read in here. This is God's word. The Lord of all the universe has chosen to speak to us through this special revelation of his. To show us who he is, who we are, how magnificent is his love, and what he's done. The the length that he's gone to, to show it to us. 
But if we don't meditate on the Bible, those things might just be lost on us and we may never be astonished by the author as we ought to be. Now, when I say meditation, don't confuse this with the kind of meditation that the world practices. That's not the same as what the Bible talks about when it talks, in, for example, in Joshua 1 or in Psalm 1 about meditating on the Word of God. Now, the meditation the world presents involves emptying your mind. Meditation in the biblical sense involves filling your mind with God's Word. We were made for this. We are made to meditate. God designed us with the capacity to pause and to ponder over great things concerning who he, who he is. And he means for us in this not just to hear him and to read quickly over what he says, but to reflect over it and chew over it. So meditation, mulling over God's word, is like relishing a tasty meal. My wife and I recently benefited from a tasty meal. A complimentary dinner at the Old Course Hotel in St. Andrews, actually. Now, don't ask me how we got it, but what, when you have a free meal, what do you order? Yeah, the second most expensive thing on the menu, because to order the most expensive thing on the menu, well, that would just be a lack of dignity, wouldn't it? You know. So I ordered a 35-pound steak. I'd never tasted it. I'm salivating, thinking about it. I'm sorry, hold on. Oh, I'd never tasted a 35-pound steak before. I never really thought it would taste any different from a six-pound rump from Tesco. But no, it was different. And... Uh, I remember noticing as I was eating it that I changed the way I eat. I, I, I didn't eat it the way I eat a rump steak from Tesco. I paused over it. You know, I looked at it. I even adjusted the plate, the angle. <laughs> I was like, this is what a 35-pound steak <laughs> looks like. Wow. I put my nose down to appreciate. That's not really that hard for a size of nose that I've got. But I put my nose down to appreciate the aroma. And I did it, you know, I did it carefully. And then when I ate, when I ate it, I, I, like, I savored the texture. I tasted the juices. I really enjoyed it. How many of you are salivating now? That's why I don't want to know. Now, that's how we should read the Bible. We're, we ought to eat this book, if you understand me, chew on it with the teeth of our minds and our hearts, roll it around in our thoughts and press it deeply into our feelings to look at it from different angles, to really understand what God is saying to us concerning himself, his glory, his majesty, his son, our forgiveness, his grace. All of these things that just astonish us and ought to shape us. And that's what meditation is. And we can do that with a single verse. We can do it with a whole passage if we take time to stop and think. And that was the appeal from last week. In meditation, we pause and reflect over the words which we've read, even heard from sermons preached or things that we've studied, roll them over in our minds, let them ignite our hearts. Sometimes it's helpful. This is why Moleskine are making a fortune just now selling these little notepads. Take time to write things down, draw little diagrams, whatever helps you pause 
and mull something over and understand what the text says. Maybe you need someone's help. Maybe you get most out of the Bible when you do that with someone else. That's wonderful. But don't miss out on the joy of meditation. I'm not a thinker. I'm, I'm not very good at thinking. Pausing. I'm too busy. No. We mentioned this last week. Let's pause and let be. use your mind and love God with it. Thirdly, lastly, memorize it. If we don't memorize passages from the Bible, we'll never be able to recall it. And recall it is exactly what Peter has asked us to do. He wants us to recall this teaching of the Old and New Testament. And if we don't read the Bible, meditate on it so that it sinks deep into our hearts and memorize it even, we'll struggle. Are we memorizing the great things of God concerning the gospel, the doctrine of the gospel, of Christ's coming into this world, living this life of sinless perfection, the life that would qualify him to be our substitute, where he would die on a cross for our sins, three days later be raised again to life, declaring, as I live, you also shall live. Forty days later, ascending to the right hand of the Father in heaven, where he is seated, awaiting the time when he will return in resplendent glory to bring in the new heaven and the new earth. Do we understand? Do we get the gospel? Do we need to dig a little bit deeper to think through as we to, to place into our memory banks the key passages that help us understand that our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are the things that we ought to mull over. These are the things, after all, that are central to the faith for centuries and the things that we say we believe when we become members in this church family. Even These doctrines are what Jude calls the truth once for all, the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, a body of doctrine. Now, it's not just the case that we ought to memorize the great teachings of the Bible in terms of their overarching sense, but also key passages. I'm not even talking about memorizing whole chapters or whole books. That's wonderful if you want to do that. That's great. But even memorizing key things. This is what we do with our kids in Sunday school. My daughter came home today, and she has a sheet with her memory verses for the year. Brilliant. And I wonder if you've sought to memorize bits of the Bible. Some might say, well, I don't really have a very good memory. I challenge you this week. Each day this week, take three or four minutes. And in fact, take two minutes, right? In fact, no, take one minute. Let's make it doable. Okay, one minute. And I want you to actually set a clock on your phone or your watch or whatever. And I want you to say, go and challenge yourself. How many verses can you write down that you remember? Okay, because I think you'll surprise yourself. Because I think you'll actually be able to remember more than you think you can remember. And then you'll trump your own notion that you're no good at memorizing things. You see? Do it. And then think through, okay, what, what do I want to memorize now? Think about imaginative and creative ways to do it. Some people really benefit from the repetitive method of just saying a verse over and over again ten times and then doing it again the next day and moving on to the next verse and so on. Some people like to do it for a week or a month. Some people like to do it with songs. Now, I have young children, and Colin Buchanan is part and parcel of my playlist. I could be cycling to work, and all of a sudden, you know, take every thought and catch it, gotcha, comes on my iPod, okay? These are the things that I have to listen to at times. Pray for me. 
um, as well as that, you know, there are great things like Seeds Family Worship. You can listen to these things or make up your own. We were on holiday recently and we taught our kids uh, Romans chapter 12, verses, uh, verse 2 to our rap. I'm not going to demonstrate it for you at all. But, you know, we can, music helps, imagery helps find ways to memorize the Bible. But it's tough. I mean, maybe you've just heard the pitch for memory verses a hundred times, persuaded of the benefits. Sure, tried your hand at it, but never really got the magic working. Maybe a breakthrough could come for you even just with a simple change in perspective. Don't be hard on yourself. What if scripture memory really is just about today? At least for a minute. You know, forget decades from now or a year from now. Abandon the mentality of building the store and stocking the pile, at least for the, as the driving motivation. Instead, focus on the present. Memorizing, while it does prepare us for the someday that is ahead, when we might use a memory verse, you know, and when we're fighting sin or counseling someone or having an evangelistic conversation, let it contribute powerfully in the present day. To make us the kind of person who walks in the Spirit today. Who even just for today says, I'm going to grow in the gospel and in Christ-likeness. And I'm going to keep myself from error and the immorality that comes with it. In closing, if you're here and you're a Christian, my encouragement from you from this text is clear. Let's read the Bible. Stop and think it over. Mull over it and... Even just ask yourself as you go from here, what is the one thing that you might, because we're all in different places, ask yourself, what is the one thing that you might do this week to improve your Bible reading? Read, meditate, memorize, recall it. It might be to write down all the ones that you know. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, my encouragement for you is to read the Bible and even let someone read it with you. It is incredible. The Bible promises, as we've looked at earlier, that it, that it searches us as we search it. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, we read that in the last days that God has spoken through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the very subject of this book and the center of, well, everything. As 2 Peter 2 says, he is the Lord the one who rules all things, the one before whom we have to give an account. And he is the savior. That even though we fall short of his glorious standard, there is a righteousness that is available to us as a gift from him. A gift that's made possible for you because he died on the cross to take away all the barriers that might prevent you from receiving this gift. So that if you come to him with this simple trust and faith, and a thankfulness of your, in your heart that when you believe in him, you'll receive it and you'll be saved from your sin. These are the things that we would love to open up with you and show you. I've seen people's faces many times. We've shown people from the Bible, this is actually what it says. Wow. Maybe for you, coming to the Bible as a blocker because you think, how can I trust this? I think it is man-made despite your claims tonight. Well, we have the Glad You Asked course coming up, and you can find information about that at the welcome point. 
And one of the key questions that's asked as part of that course is, how can I trust the Bible? It's trustworthy. You'll actually be amazed at how trustworthy it is. Last week, I was in the British Library looking at the Codex Sinaiticus from the 4th century. Two fragments of John's Gospel from the 3rd century. Every other text roundabout, whether it was people from the arts or from other religions, their text went back to something like the 8th or the 9th century. What we have is what was written. And what was written was written by witnesses that you can trust. Go along to Glad you asked. Sign up for that. Believe it. Let's pray together.